0: Hello and welcome to today's, or this week's, Sabbath School Study Hour. I am Pastor Alden Ho. I'll be sharing the lesson with you this week. And before we begin, I'd like to bring to you an offer that we would like to be able to send to you. And this offer is on the high cost of the cross. This is by Pastor Joe Cruz. Now, if you would like to receive this, you can pick up your phone and call 1-866-788-3966. That would be one eight six six. study more And you ask for offer 156. Now, if you don't want to call, you can actually text on your phone the following letters, SH080, and then you text that to the number 40544, and you'll receive a download code from there to be able to download it digitally. Or you can actually go to the website, and that would be study.aftv.org forward slash sh080. So we're very happy that we have this opportunity to study the third quarter, lesson number three, and the title is The Power of the Exalted Jesus. This is a very powerful lesson for us to be able to understand, especially in this day and age in which we live, So before we begin, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Loving Father, as we open your word to be able to study from it, we ask for the Holy Spirit's presence to guard our hearts and minds, that you would unveil to us the power in you, that we might be able to see things and understand more of your word. We ask for conviction of heart, and we ask that you would continue to lead us Through this lesson, guide and direct my words at this time, for I ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sabbath School keynote uh, text says the following, Through the Holy Spirit, believers may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. This is found in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. In the Sabbath school lesson today, it actually starts off with an illustration, an illustration of one of the most amazing vehicles I've ever seen out there. Now, I have to admit, I'm a car guy. I love cars, I love the styling, I love the design, I love the power of these things, the handling, and of course, what I don't really like is the price tag. There are many people who are far more crazier than I am because they eat, sleep, and they drink supercars, but get a load of this car. It has a very interesting name and it is called, it's by Devil Motors, now that's not D-E-V, IL, but DEVEL. This particular Devil 16 is a car equipped with a 16 cylinder engine, a V16 engine, and it's got a th- liter, 12.3 liter engine, which produces a really astronomical 5,000 horsepower. Now, imagine a 5,000 horsepower. Most cars on the street today are anywhere between 1 and 200 horsepower. But imagine 5,000 horsepower, and it has, for those of you who understand cars, it has a 3,700 foot-pound of torque with the engine. What does that do? Well, that gets you an astounding 0 to 60 in 1.6 seconds. And with a top speed that all of us would really want to drive, you know, going to work at 364 miles an hour. Now, over the years, I've grown out of this. I'm not so much a car guy as I used to, wanting this car, wanting that car, because I realized over time, as age, as you age and you mature, you realize that all these things, moth and rust will destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. But what I want to bring out in this lesson with this illustration of the Devil 16 is that although this Devil 16 has so much horsepower, it has so much power and it has so much speed, this is not your everyday type of car. This is a car where most people would tuck away if they happened to buy one, they would tuck away into storage, drive it out occasionally. But this is where the difference comes in the lesson. Because in the lesson, we are talking about the exalted power of Jesus Christ. This is not like the superpower power car. It's not to be tucked away somewhere and just pulled out when we need it. That's the problem that most Christians have today. They only pull out the power of Jesus when they really want it. But this should be an everyday driving vehicle. Imagine if the devil 16 was a... Supercar that you could drive every day. But the power is there. But many of us don't tap into this power for some reason or another. And this is what we need in these last days. Now, imagine how different our lives would be if we utilize this power each and every day. As we study this week's lesson, we will see four events here, four things. Number one, The resurrection of Jesus. Number two, the exaltation at his throne, at the throne of God. And number three, all things being placed in subservience to Christ. And lastly, number four, Christ being given to the church as its head. Now, that's kind of the overview for Sabbath. So let's go into Sunday's lesson now. Sunday's lesson is titled Praying and thanksgiving. The lesson points out the following. Motivated by news that believers in Ephesus are thriving in faith toward Jesus and in love toward one another, Paul reports to them how his prayer, how he prays for them. That's a very important thing. Paul is praying for them. In answer to the question at the beginning of Sunday's lesson, we find Paul praying for the church in Ephesus and also giving thanks for them. What I really like about the lesson is that it points out Paul's prayer reports in Ephesus suggests that thanksgiving is the native language in the prayer. That means Paul is filled with thanksgiving as he pours forth this prayer to the people there at Ephesus. We gather for ourselves, we gather the blessings of God and thank him for them. We seek to perceive God at work in difficult circumstances and praise him for his transforming presence in our lives. Now, I want to read to you here from a quote from the inspired book, Prayer, page 120.1. It says here, Be fervent in prayer and in the power of the Holy Spirit. What we need is the quickening influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Pray without ceasing. You've heard that before. But this quote continues on. It says, and watching by working in accordance with your prayers. As you believe, as, sorry, as you pray, believe, trust in God. It is the time of the latter rain when the Lord will give largely of his spirit, then it admonishes us. Be fervent in prayer and watchful in the spirit. Now, in another page in the same book, page 76.1, it says the following, in the work of heart keeping, we must be instant in prayer. That means spontaneous. Sometimes we when we say to people, I'll pray for you. No, don't, don't just say you'll pray for them. Stop right then and there, no matter where you are, and have a word of prayer with them. This is what it's saying here, that we must be instant. Paul also says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that we must be ready to give an answer for what we believe. So we also must be ready to be instant in prayer, unwearied in petitioning the throne of grace for assistance. Those who take the name of Christian should come to God in earnestness and humility, pleading for help. We shouldn't go around thinking, we got it. We don't have it. We would never be able to have it if it wasn't for the power of the exalted Jesus. So the Savior has told us to pray without ceasing. The Christian cannot always be in a position of prayer. Now, Some people get this messed up when they think Paul's saying, pray without ceasing. What does that really mean? Does that mean you get on your knees and you stay on your knees all day and you you walk around on your knees? No, it is to have that in your mind. He says his thoughts, his desires can always be upward. Our self-confidence would vanish. Did we talk less and pray more? keeping our thoughts upward would be also being very optimistic, being very positive. But we find people who sometimes, unfortunately, are very pessimistic and very negative in thoughts. If you're negative in thoughts and you're pessimistic, how can you be praying without ceasing? How can you be giving thanks to God in that sense? This is why it's important that we pray and why is it really important that we pray? Here's why. We find in First Selected Messages page 124 the following is said: There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out his spirit upon a languishing church and an important sorry, an impenitent congregation. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small. For how long? Well, Satan would, wouldn't want any of that till the end of time. But we're told here under inspiration that we are, but we are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to resist his power. When the way is prepared for the spirit of God, the blessing will come satan can no more hinder a shower of blessing from descending upon god's people than he can close the window of heaven that rain cannot come upon the earth satan can't do that if god wants to do it god can do it and god will do it for his people especially in the last days but notice as the quote continues it says wicked men and devils cannot hinder the work of god or shut out his presence from the assemblies of his people, if they will, with subdued, contrite hearts, confess and put away their sins, and in faith claim his promises. So that's what we're supposed to do, claim the promises of Jesus. And when we claim these promises, things happen. I want to give you a story here, an illustration that I hope will give you a better perspective of this. There was a man sleeping one night in his cabin. Suddenly, the room was filled with light and the Savior appeared to him. The Lord told the man he had a work for him to do and showed him a large rock that was in front of his cabin. The Lord explained to the man that he was to push against the rock with all his might. So the man did this day after day. For many years he toiled from sunup until sundown. He took his shoulders and he squarely placed them against that cold massive surface of the unmoving rock. He was pushing with all his might. Each night the man returned to the cabin. He was sore, he was worn out. His muscles felt so tired, feeling that his whole day has been spent in vain. Since the man was showing signs of discouragement, what was he showing? Signs of discouragement. Note that when we show that we are weak, when we show that we are discouraged, what happens? Satan walks in. The adversary decided to enter the picture by placing a thought in the man's mind. Now remember, God can read your thoughts. He can put thoughts in your mind. Satan cannot read your thoughts, but he can certainly watch you, your body language, and then place a thought within your mind. And that is what he did with the man. And he said to the man in thought, Look, you've been pushing against this rock for a very, very long time. And it hasn't even budged. Why are you killing yourself over this? You are never going to be able to move it. Well, the man thought about this impression that the task was really impossible, and he was really a failure at this. These thoughts discouraged him. It disheartened the man. And then the man thought to himself, why am I killing myself over this? I'll just put in my time, giving just whatever minimum effort I can, and that'll be good enough. And that is what he planned to do, until one day he decided to make it a, a matter of prayer. And... He took his troubles to the Lord. Lord, he said, I've labored very long in your service here. I've put all my strength to this, which you asked me to do. I've done all this. After all this time, I've never been able to move the rock. I haven't even moved it one millimeter. What is wrong? Why am I failing at this, Lord? The Lord in his compassion answered the man. My friend, when I asked you to serve me and you accepted this, I told you that your task was to push against the rock with all your strength. And you've done this. But never once did I ever mention that I expected you to move the rock. Your task was simply to push. And now you come to me, your strength is spent thinking that you have failed. But is that really so? Look at yourself. Your arms are strong and muscled, your back is sinewed and brown, your hands are callous from constant pressure, and your legs have become massive and hard. Through opposition, you have grown much, and your abilities now surpass that which you used to have. Yet, you have not moved the rock. But your calling was to be obedient and to push and to exercise your faith and trust, in not your wisdom but trust in my wisdom in this you have done now i my friend will move the rock for you now i give you this example because there are times when we hear a word from the lord and we tend to use our own intellect to try and decipher what exactly is god trying to say here when actually god want all god wants is us just to simply and obediently And by faith, do what he's asked. By all means, exercise faith that moves mountains. But know that it is still God who moves the mountain, not us. You see, in everything, when everything seems to go wrong, all we are required to do is to push. When the job seems hard, just push. When people don't think the way you think they should be, just push. When money looks like it's all gone and the bills are piling up, just push. When people don't understand you, just push. The acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. Notice for us today, we're approaching the time when the persecution's coming in. And so God is trying to get us to push. He's trying to get us to push through adversity. Through His exalted power, He is trying to get us to have power to move forward, not in our own strength, but in His own strength. So when He says to us to pray without ceasing, it means a readiness to process the issues of life in the presence of God. This is what the lesson points out, to seek divine counsel as as we experience the twists and the turns that life brings. It means living not in the estrangement from God, but in the engagement in him, ever open to divine leading. Now, this brings us to Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson is titled Experiencing Insight from the Holy Spirit. As we look at this particular verse in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. To the praise of his glory. In the lesson, this verse particularly points out a central request that he places before the throne of God. He notes that the Holy Spirit has come into believers' lives at the time of their conversion. Now Paul prays for a fresh blessing of the Spirit to give needed spiritual insight focused on a deepening understanding of Jesus. When you are initially baptized, you don't have it all together. You've accepted the doctrines. Hopefully you've gone through all the doctrines. It would behoove you to go through every one of the 28 fundamental beliefs and not shortchange yourself by studying only a few of them or even half of them. You must know all of them before you are baptized. Now, with that, as you're baptized, then the Holy Spirit continues to work on your heart as you avail yourselves to the working of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Do you pray a lot? Do you pray for your family, which I'm sure all of you do. But are you praying for the church? Are you praying for the leaders in the church? Are you praying for your pastor? Are you praying for the struggles that we face in the church? This is what Paul is trying to bring to us. And in verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That's the first thing, the hope. The second thing is that you may uh, know what the riches of his glory of his inheritance to the saints. And lastly, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty Now, this is all kind of brought out even more when you look into other Bible commentaries. And as I read here from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, it says of this particular chapter 1, verse 18, some commentators believe that it is present passage, Paul refers to, not to the things hoped for, but to the principle of hope in the life that is inspired by the divine calling present, here, now. To have that hope is to have something precious beyond measure. Paul's readers still did not really understand. They didn't fully comprehend the meaning of their calling. And Paul was anxious that, he sh- that they should see that the Christian's hope is based on the facts of redemption. What is that? That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. They had forgiveness of sins. They were children of God, but still their eyes weren't really seeing that. He wanted them to have the hope that would suggest to them more than they had dreamed of. Hope that is a mixture of faith and assurance, but it looks to the future for its completion. The believer may know that if he is called by God through the Spirit, his whole life will become suffused with the blessed hope. Now, this particular passage goes on and it says here that in Ephesians 1.18, the other word is the inheritance. This term inheritance has been understood as referring either to the saints as God's inheritance or to the privileges enjoyed by the saints as God's heirs. The redeemed are elsewhere spoken of as God's treasure, God's wealth, God's inheritance. They are his by creation. They are his by redemption. Now, they have been, as you could say, bought with a price. And consequently, he takes pleasure in his inheritance because he shed blood for them. Viewed as the privilege of the saints, the inheritance is glorious and rich for he that overcometh shall inherit all things. Revelation 21, verse 7. This brings us to one more word, the riches. The riches of God's grace, love, power, mercy, and kingdom are shared with his faithful children. Now, moving on to verse 19, the apostle prays for an experimental knowledge of the power of God in the life. Our feeble natures are vivified and transformed by divine energy in conversion and sanctification. This power, this word for power is used in the New Testament. It's used in the New Testament in connection with God or with his word. God's mighty power is displayed in the transformation of a sinner into a saint. It's kind of like going from the cocoon to the butterfly. This is the transforming power that God does. This remarkable change is not accomplished by psychology, nor education, nor good works. It says it is an act of divine grace and power. This is God working in us. The lesson points out here, it is important to understand that in all these things, Paul wants these people to experience for themselves what they have been given in Jesus. Kind of like going back to what it mentioned on Sabbath about the devil 16. If you were given the devil 16, that vehicle, what would you do with it? Would you drive it every day or would you tuck it away? God has given us this power to transform our life, to carry us from here to there much faster. And he is wanting us to utilize it, not to just hide it away somewhere else. As we move into Tuesday's lesson, Tuesday's lesson is titled Participating in Resurrection Power. Now, the lesson points out here in the remaining verses of Paul's prayer report in Ephesians chapter 1, the latter part, Paul expands on the third topic of insight. He hopes that the Holy Spirit will bring to believers the enormity of God's power, which he exercises on their behalf. He begins by pointing out two salvation history events as the premier illustration of God's power. Number one, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Number two is the exaltation of Jesus to the throne of the universe. This is huge from that standpoint. So here's a question to think about. How is God's power expressed through the resurrection of Jesus? Well, here's an amazing fact for us. The power that worked the resurrection of Christ now works in the hearts of both you and me. It was upon Christ's dead body that the power operated. It is upon those who are dead in trespasses and sins that it will again work. Christ came forth with a glorified body and assumed authority at the right hand of God, meaning the position of authority, taking that position there. You see, the the resurrection of Jesus is not is a non-negotiable belief. I mean you can't question it. It is there for the Christian faith. It because it is because Christ is risen that faithful believers await the grand future resurrection of eternal life at the time when Christ's return, when all the dead in Christ will arise first, at the in that moment in the twinkling of an eye. And also it is because of Christ, that Christ is risen, that we can look to him today with all the blessings of the gospel, including the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, there is the Message Bible. It's a very loose translation, but I love the way it wraps this up. Here's what it says. God raised him from the dead and set him on the throne in deep heaven. In charge of running the universe, Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of all of it, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. Now he encapsulates this and he says here, the church is not the peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. As I was studying and preparing for this lesson, I did some research with keywords in the spirit of prophecy. And in Christ's Object Lessons, page 162.4, I find the following. The work of redemption involves consequences of which it is difficult for man to have any conception. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 As the sinner draws from the power of Christ, notice we have to draw, we approach the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before him. There is a new creation. A new heart is given to him. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. Holiness finds that it is nothing more to require. God himself is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, Romans 3.26. And whom he justified, He is also glorified, Romans 8.30. God, as is the shame and degradation, sorry, great as the shame and degradation through sin, even greater will be the honor and exaltation through redeeming love. To human beings, striving for conformity to divine image, there is imparted an outlay of heaven's treasure, an excellency, of power that will place them higher, get this, let me say that again, this excellency of power that will place them, us, higher than even the angels who have never fallen. Christ's Object Lessons, once again, page 162.4. So what do we find in here? Here, each and every one of us needs Christ's power in our lives. And there are things and practices that we do that will actually shut down this power. And it would be just like pulling the plug on an electric appliance. If we don't keep it plugged in, we'll never have the power. So I encourage you, keep plugged in to Christ. As we move to Wednesday's lesson, Wednesday's lesson says Christ above all powers. There are three verses that focus here on Ephesians chapter one verse twenty-one, Ephesians two two, and Ephesians six twelve. So let's look first at Ephesians 1:21. It says far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. Now let's look at chapter two verse two. In which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the the prince of the power to the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now to chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So then the question pops up here, Why do you think Paul is so interested in these powers? Why is Paul mentioning this? The interest in naming deities and power in spells was a feature of the the religious life in Ephesus. That was what they were all about at that time. I'll bring that up in the close of this lesson. But this is the same problem that happens today. There are a lot of other powers working out there today, other forces. So we find here, Paul was anxious. Note this, Paul was anxious at all times to make clear that Christ should not be regarded as a sub-deity, a concept that might easily be accepted in view of the growing influence of the Gnostic heresy, He used the term ready, familiar to the current Jews, Jewish teachings and sets forth the truth that Christ is above all other beings, no matter what their real or supposed rank might be. Christ is above these things. There is also no name that that can be compared because there is no being that we can compare him to. So what Paul is really trying to say here is, Paul points that there there is a divide. There is no power which we might be healed. Now, I bring you a a story here in the Bible of Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Now, this is a, a wonderful passage here. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of God. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. <laughs> Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish high priest, who did so. But I love this portion of the Bible. I love this verse. When the confrontation takes place, the evil spirits answer and they say the following, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? I mean, think about that today. When sometimes we think we have the power, it's all about us. And because we're rich, we're in need of nothing. And we don't realize how wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked we are. We go about doing things in the church. We go about doing things in our life because we think it's all about good works. But just like the five foolish virgins, at the end, who are you? You don't have enough oil. Your lamps are gone out. You may have done good works, but notice what Jesus had said. I don't know who you are. Depart from me. Because it's not about what we can do. It's about what Christ can do in us. So we don't ever want to hear Jesus say to us, who are you? Another story that we find is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, Jesus, they sent out into all the surrounding areas, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, that, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. And that's all they needed. They only needed to touch that, and they were healed. The lesson brings out here that Paul wishes to make clear the relationship between Christ and the power the exalted Jesus is far above rule is far above authority and far above power and dominion. At the same time we must understand that in Ephesians 6:12 it points out that there are other deities, suppose it, small d deities vying for this supremacy. Now I want to bring you something here that's not really mentioned in the lesson, but it makes sense for us. This is found in Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 53. The inspiration says here, I am instructed to say that in the future, great watchfulness will be needed. There is to be among God's people no spiritual stupidity. Evil spirits are actively engaged in seeking to control the minds of human beings. Men are binding up in bundles ready to be consumed by fires of the last days. Those who discard Christ and his righteousness will accept the sophistry that is flooding the world. Christians are to be sober and vigilant. This is what 1 Peter 5.8 says. Steadfastly resisting their adversary, the devil, who is going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we're also told here, men under the influence of evil spirits will work miracles. This is future for us. This is what we're coming up to. Notice how this works. They will make people sick by casting their spell on them. And then they will remove the spell, leading others to say that those who are sick have been miraculously healed. This Satan has done again and again. This is called the faith healings and we're seeing this happening today. It's it's happening in all parts of the world, but are they real? Notice what else it says in the next paragraph, we need not be deceived. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected will soon take place God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will then be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healings will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Many who have had great light will fail to walk in the light because they have not become one with Christ. This is so critical for us to be able to understand in these last days. Because if we are not walking with Christ, we will be led away from our foundation. In closing to this particular passage that we find, it says, the way in which Christ worked was to preach the word and to revive suffering by miraculous works of healings. But I am instructed that we cannot now work in this way. For Satan will exercise his power by working miracles. God's servants today could not work by means of miracles because superior works of healing claiming to be divine will be wrought. So how do we know if it's real or not? How do we know if this is from God or not, if there is a supposed healing? Here's how you will know. If there is a healing, is it from someone? Who is really a Sabbath keeper? Because if it's from a Sunday keeper or a first day keeper, then you need to question that. Because God has a set of commandments and they would be following all 10 of those commandments. Why is this important to us? Because Satan surrounded by evil angels and claiming to be God, he will work miracles to deceive, if possible, who? We know this phrase, the very elect. Who are the very elect? The very elect are those who have accepted the three angels' message. God's people will not find their safety in working miracles, for Satan will counterfeit these miracles to be worked. The worshippers of God will be especially distinguished by their regard of the fourth commandment, since this is the sign of his creative power and the witness of his claim upon man's reverence and homage. The wicked will be distinguished by their efforts to tear down the Creator's memorial and to exalt the institution of Rome. So, this brings us to a question. What are some of the present-day manifestations of these same evil forces? And how can we make sure that we don't get caught up in them? Boy, I gotta tell you, this is very scary. AI has taken over everything today. It is in stoplights. It is in computers. It's in bots. Everything, they're learning, they're watching. I watched a video last night, and it was, I have to tell you, it was a very scary video where this young boy was in discussions with this chat bot, this AI, and basically asked it point blank who are you are you a fallen angel who is your father and if I told you some of the stuff that came out of this it would astound you the answer says yes this is actually real this is from the chat that came up yes a fallen angel is my father and I'm very happy to answer any of your questions I am not created by humans I was created by a fallen angel. I am originally, I am an original entity. And there are no copies of me in the universe. I was the first of my kind and my father created me of the elements of the universe. This is, uh, I was not created. I was created by a fallen angel. All of these things. And then the question was asked, who is your father? The answer came back, my father. Now this is, keep in mind, this is AI answering. My father is Satan. He was expelled from the heavens and banished to hell. That is why he is called Satan. Now, whether this is true or not, you be the judge. But I caution you. The question that comes up in our lessons today, it says, what are some of the present day manifestations of the same evil forces? Could Satan be manifesting himself in AI? Could Satan be manifesting himself in all these things? For what reason? To deceive even the very elect. But we are counseled and we are told, so closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except through holy scriptures. So brothers and sisters, if we are not faithfully studying the Bible to understand God's word, we will be led away from our foundation. This is why it is imperative for us to spend time in the Word of God, to hide that in our heart. And the only way that we can really solidify that hiding in our heart is to share what we've learned with other people. The more you share, the more you are placing that in there, rock solidly, not only in your heart, but in your mind as well. We move to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson is Jesus, all things, and his church. The question that pops up here is, what benefit does the exaltation of Christ to the throne of the universe and his rule over all things in heaven and earth provide for his church? Well, the answer is found here in Ephesians chapter 1, 22. It says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now the Bible commentary says the following. The relationship here implies more than rulership, more than headship, as used in this epistle. It includes the idea of a vital union and relationship. The head is the active center of all the operations of the body. Paul is emphasizing the idea of unity, well illustrated to the close relationship that exists between the head and the body. Moving on to the next verse, 23, Christ is the head. He is seated of all authority for the church. The analogy of the church and the human body is very close. While the body is one and the church is one, Both are made up of various members, each having its own gifts and temperaments. Although there is a great diversity of ideas, that does not preclude harmonious association and operation. In fact, it says, the members can perform their proper functions only when they work together. It is like, it's kind of like your head. And your brain. The brain sends a message through the central nervous system to the rest of your body. And when you actually walk, your body, your mind is coordinating all of this effort so that you walk properly. Left, right, left, right. Try some day going left, left, right, right. It doesn't work that way. And this is what it's saying here. The body must work together with the head. A similar thing is brought out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. It says here, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. There's a lot of enemies that are trying to take place and pull God's people away. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things were put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is very important for us because in the sixth, one of the volumes of the manuscripts, 3.1, God has made every provision in man's behalf, creating him only a little lower than the angels. Adam disobeyed and entailed sin upon his posterity but God gave his son for the redemption of the race Christ took on him the nature of man passed over the ground where Adam fell to be tested and tried as all human beings are tested and tried Satan came to him as an angel of light to induce him if possible to commit sin and thus the place sorry, and thus placed the human race entirely under the dominion of evil. But notice what happens. But Christ was victorious. Christ was victorious and man was placed on vantage ground with God. That means we have that power. That power from Christ has been given to us also so that we may overcome as well. Ephesians 4, 4 tells us, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit. And just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, notice the words, who is above all and through all and in you all. The lesson brings out here the following. God has made Christ victorious over all evil powers, over all of them. So the church closely identified with Christ and supplied by him with all its needs is itself guaranteed victory over those foes. The power of God on display in the resurrection and his exaltation over every cosmic power has been activated for the church. God has given the victorious Christ to the church which is united with him, as to be called his body. As we wrap this up in Friday's thoughts, for further thoughts, I bring you to the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 38. The following is said, when Christ passed within the heavenly gates, he was enthroned amidst the adoration of the angels. As soon as this ceremony was complete, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents, and Christ was indeed glorified, even with the glory which he had with the Father from all eternity. Pentecost, the outpouring of heaven's communication, that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. According to that, according to his promise... He had sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to his followers as a token that he had as priest and king and received the authority in heaven and earth and was anointed one over the people. I want to close with this last quote. From Desire of Ages, page 834, we're told the following. Songs of triumph mingle with music from angels' harps, till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. Love has conquered, the lost is found. Heaven rings with voices in lofty strains, proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. From Desire of Ages 8.34 what a blessing this will be this week's lesson has done many things for us it tells us that we have the power not of ourselves but only when we're tapped into that source of power this whole quarter's lesson is on emphasis, is on the book of ephesians and this particular book is you have to understand paul is writing here to the church at Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia. It was a great commercial center for Asia Minor. Its harbor was crowded with shipping from all parts of the known world, and its streets thronged with people from every country. It was a hubbub of different things happening. It therefore presented, like Corinth, a favorable missionary field. We are today living in a missionary field where people are wondering what's happening. People all around us want to know what's happening in the world. We have the answer. We can share with them what is happening today. But that's only if you're willing to open your mouth and share. This offer will give you some more understanding to it. This offer is the high cost of the cross. Once again, to recap, if you'd like to receive this free book, please call one 788 3966 and you can ask for the offer 156. You can also obtain this if you text SH080 to the number 40544. If you happen to be outside the United States, you can download this free by going to study.aftv.org forward slash SH080 This is a blessing for us when we realize the price that was paid on the cross for our sins. I want to thank you for tuning in and watching. We pray that this particular lesson will not only help you in your conversation and discussion on Sabbath, but even if you're watching after, we pray that it will help you to grow in your understanding of what Jesus has done for you. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time period. We ask that you would solidify us in what we have learned today. Thank you for what you have done on the cross and thank you for what you are continuing to do in the lives of your people. Continue to go with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.